We've seen in the last several chapters this road being worn between Antioch and Jerusalem. We saw that persecution broke out earlier in Acts and that they scattered everywhere. One place they went was Antioch and they preached the gospel there. Barnabas was sent there to build up the church. Barnabas went and got Paul to help him. They went back to Jerusalem to bring offerings. Uh, They went back to Antioch. Uh, And now we see this same thing happening. They're in Antioch. Some from Jerusalem come teaching falsely about the gospel. And the good shepherds, Barnabas and Paul, go head to head with these false teachers. And then they're sent back to Jerusalem to settle the debate. And then they're sent back to Antioch. So we see this back and forth between Antioch and Jerusalem in the early church. They were, Jerusalem was the beginning of the church, mainly Jewish. Antioch was the beginning of the church in the Gentile world. And now the shift from Jerusalem to Antioch has taken place. So that's where we are. Last week, we saw Barnabas and Paul, mainly Paul, on their first missionary journey. Sent out by the church in Antioch, first to Cyprus, then north to Asia Minor, and then back to Antioch. And so that's where they are at the end of the first journey, and that's where we find ourselves here in chapter 15. If you remember, too, we're not taking Acts slowly. We're not taking it in little bite-sized chunks. We're taking it in kind of large, entire sections. And so Acts 15 is typically called the first council of Jerusalem, where they settle the first big doctrinal dispute in the church. Then Acts concludes with two more missionary journeys of Paul, the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey. So we're going to be done with Acts here pretty shortly, even though we have about half the book left, because we're just going to take the second journey as one sermon and the third journey and, and, and then conclude. And then we'll move on to, what are we doing, Luke for Easter? End of Luke, you guys, John, John. And then we're going to go to Galatians, that I know. So if you care about where we're going, that's where we're going. Two things we're going to see in Acts. Acts chapter 15 is very, very important in the history of Christianity for two big reasons. How the church orders and governs itself. This is the text you go to see how the church should structure itself. And then this is the text that teaches that salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone. Very, very important realities in this chapter. This is the chapter for it. And so if you want to know how the church should govern herself, this is one of the main texts. If you want to know that salvation is by grace and not by works, this is the text where that's fought out. So very important. So a good thing we only have 45 minutes to do it. Uh, What I want to do is I want to read the entirety of the chapter, I'm going to pause a few times to explain a few things. Then I want to talk about those two big areas. That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read. I'm going to pray, read, give you a few comments, and then talk about governance and the gospel of grace. So let's pray. Father, give us teachable hearts now that we may keep your word to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Teach us to delight in it. Incline our hearts towards it, not towards this world. Turn our eyes from worthless things. Teach us to fear you, O God. Your rules are good. We long for them. In your righteousness, give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So here's Acts chapter 15. But some men came from Judea. So here they are from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So here's the issue The issue is that these Jewish people who say they trust Jesus have come up from Jerusalem to Antioch and saying, yes, you need Jesus, but if you aren't circumcised, if you don't keep the law of Moses in a tent, if you don't also become Jewish, you cannot go to heaven. You cannot be part of the kingdom of God. In verse 5, it specifies, and keep the law of Moses. And so, Paul and Barnabas, it notes, not only disagree, in other versions, they have a sharp uh, dissent. They go after these folks. And, and, and so that's the situation. And they're sent back. And so let's see what happens back in Jerusalem. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. See, we have these hierarchies already in the church. You have these distinctions among the equality of Christians. We'll get to that a lot. And they all and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, considered this matter, and after they had much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James. Now this James is the half-brother of the Lord. He was the leader uh, of the church in Jerusalem. And so here he is about to settle the matter. I want you to note this. He has authority. He has responsibility. And he's going to stand up and exercise it. And it's very helpful to the church. So uh, just... Take note of James. This is some guts here. This is some courageous faith being exercised here. Verse 14, or verse 13. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, uh, that name Simeon is Peter. 
This is Peter. So Peter, again, is his Greek name. Simeon or Simon is his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. So Peter or Simeon or Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will restore it. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. All right, so James is here looking back to the Old Testament to Amos, depending on the promise made to David by God in Chronicles that David would have an eternal reign on an eternal throne and that he would reign not only over the Jews but over all nations. And so James is saying, Jesus, my half-brother the Lord, is the promised king who is going to reign. So that has happened. And therefore, we shouldn't at all be surprised that he is exercising his rule over all nations the Gentiles are coming in. And, and, and so this is what we would have expected. Why is this troubling to you? Why are you requiring them to become Jewish? This is what said would happen. Jesus is not just Lord over one nation, over all nations. So verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. A little bit there. You'll notice that James defends free grace. It's salvation through the grace of Jesus Christ by faith alone. And yet he gives these four rules. How many of those four are still in function today? There's four things he says. How many of those are still binding today? Come on. One. Sexual morality, right? All food laws are gone. We're free. So what is James doing here? Well, he is doing what the gospel requires of us, that though we have complete freedom in Christ, not freedom to sin, there are some times where those of us who have freedom set aside our freedom in love for the conscience of somebody else whose conscience is not yet free. So this church in Antioch is Gentile with Jews, Jews who, in verse 21, have never heard anything but the laws of Moses. And now this radical transformation has come because of Jesus. All food is welcome. You can eat anything without conscience, without, without having any issues with your conscience. And yet, James is writing to them, yeah, you, don't be sexual immoral, but in this transition period, restrict your freedom in regards to some of the food laws for the sake of the Jewish Christians among you now. It's really good leadership. It's really wise, 
patient. It's what Paul will write to the church. If you're with a believer whose conscience isn't as free as it should be, you should maybe restrict your freedom for a little while for their sake, for their conscience. That's what James is doing here. This is really excellent leadership. All right, so verse 22, they go back to Antioch. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So there again, you have apostles, you have elders, and you have the entire church, different layers of authority to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, Silas, leading men among the brothers, probably some of the elders, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles at Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Isn't this wonderful? The Jewish apostles and elders of the first church in Jerusalem write to the church in Antioch that are Gentiles and they are just brothers. Isn't that wonderful? The gospel brings together what the world consistently keeps separate. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. We're all one in Christ. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seems good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, notice that, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. We'll cover the rest of the chapter next week. So put yourself there in Antioch. The troublemakers are still there. The entire church is called together. The believers who have been troubled because of the teaching of those who came up from Jerusalem, they're there too. And this letter is read. Uh, And this letter censures, rebukes, calls out those who would add burden to the Gentile Christians that, no, Jesus isn't enough. You need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses, all the food ceremonial regulations. This is very courageous. But the church is strengthened. They're they're greatly encouraged. So as you can see in here, you have excellent, godly, courageous, faithful shepherding taking place. And we have the beginnings of How is the church to govern itself? What are the relationships between different churches? 
in each church who is responsible for the shepherding, who is to take authority, what role is the congregation or the membership in this. We see all of this happening. So notice all of the players, all of the distinct hierarchical give and take. So who, who are those players? Well, you have the church. They're noted several times. Early on in the chapter, it is noted that the church sends Barnabas and Paul and some others to go back to Jerusalem to have this question settled. Verse 3, being sent on their way by the church. And then, later on in the chapter back in Jerusalem, the entire church is gathered and takes part in the dispute about this issue of is salvation by grace alone or is salvation requiring circumcision of the law of Moses? The church is in that meeting. Their voices are heard. And so the church is part of this, exercising authority, the membership, the laity, the congregation. That's one part. Then you have the apostles. They're named. These are the men who were with Jesus the three years, who saw his destruction and saw him raised from the dead. Now, we don't have apostles anymore, do we? If any of you are tempted on a vacation, go on vacation and go to a church named the Apostle Solomon and usually his wife, don't go to that church. There are no more apostles because there's no more eyewitnesses to Jesus' three years of ministry and his death and resurrection, right? But here they were still there. So they had a level of authority that seemed to be above all others. And then there's even distinction among the apostles, Peter has a certain voice because of God's distinction in using him to preach to the Gentiles first. James has a certain distinction. And then you have the elders named. Now, I want to take a moment here. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 15 and turn back to Exodus chapter 18, if you will. Because though we have no more apostles, we continue to have elders. And I wanted to show you the origins of elders. Where did this come from? This will be a pretty familiar text to you. This is just after uh, God had freed Israel from enslavement in Egypt. And they're out in the wilderness. And Moses' father-in-law, okay? Young men, you'll need older men in your life to help you do better. So Moses' father-in-law comes, and he observes Moses in verse uh, 13 and following, sitting and settling disputes from morning till evening. How many of you have ever involved yourself in somebody else's conflict, either with their own sin or maybe with a friendship, like junior high? There's always this relational, uh, right? And it is exhausting to involve yourself in somebody else's conflict. And, and to counsel for an hour is, is just drains you. And Moses is doing this from sun up till sundown. All of the disputes for all of the Israelites. All of the marriage disputes, all of the parenting issues, all of the he said, she saids, all of the business issues, all of it is what Moses is doing. 
And Jethro sees this and says, dude, 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 (laughs) you're going to kill yourself and you're not going to be helpful to the people. Listen to me and I'll, I'll help you. And so verse 17, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. Verse 18, you're not able to do it alone. Verse 19, obey my voice and God will be with you. And he sets up this hierarchy. You should get men, look at verse 21. You should get able men, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, men who hate the bribe, so godly men. Place some of them over chiefs of the thousands, over hundreds, over fifties and tens. So here's the beginning of elders. Notice the qualifications. The qualification for an elder is character plus ability. Character plus being able to bring the word of God to bear in dispute. We see this carried right over in the New Testament, don't we? If you read 1 Timothy 3, what are the qualifications for an elder? It's all character plus the ability to teach. He's just repeating here what we see here. Then, okay, please pay attention here. What are elders for? What are the elders supposed to be doing over God's people? What are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be neck deep in your manure. They're supposed to be settling your conflicts, your marital spats. Right? You, I don't know what to do with my teenage daughter spats. Your, hey, I made a business deal with so-and-so and I provided this carpentry work and they aren't treating it well, and I don't know how to do this. They're, they're supposed to be dealing sundown, sun up to sundown with your sin, your fights. And foremost, your battle against your own sin. All right, so this is very important here. Every one of you thinks that your church is healthy if and only if it never has any problems and conflict. And yet, an entire office is given to the church to do one thing only from sun up till sundown, deal with your conflict. The mark of a healthy church isn't the absence of any conflict and fighting, the mark of a healthy church are men who enter into your conflict and fighting and bring solution to it. Okay, you have to rewire your brain here. Because in America, if you go to a healthy church, the church, without any time that the pastor ever offends anybody, and nobody ever leaves, and everybody's perfect, and there's no marriage problems, and there's no parenting problems, and there's no relational conflict problems, and everybody's good. There's no sinners at all. I mean, they're broken. They're broken. Everybody's broken here. But nobody ever has any conflict. Right? The perfect marriage of marriage, we never argue. I had a couple say that a couple of years ago. We never argue, and I thought, oh my God. 
what an awful marriage you live in. Because you're just both lying to each other constantly. You don't love each other at all because you won't fight with each other. So this is what elders are for. And that's what we see happening in Acts 15. The elders, the leading men, isn't that already offensive enough to you? Well, can't the women do it? Well, heck yeah. Who do the women fight? The younger women. How many of you consider yourself older women? Raise your hands, please. Higher. When was your birthday? How old are you? How many of you consider yourselves a younger woman? Raise your hands, please. Nice and high. Now, older women, take note of them, and please get into their lives and deal with their conflict. That's what you're for. I don't, I don't want to keep telling women to submit to their husbands because you older women are telling your younger women to submit to their husbands. I don't want to keep telling younger women, you cannot have a full-time job and career and a family. It isn't possible. I shouldn't have to say that anymore. Why? Because the older women are constantly saying that to the younger women. Don't go to college and get four years of thousands of dollars of debt and think that you can marry and have a bunch of kids then. It isn't possible. I don't want to keep saying that. I don't want to have the younger women keep hating me. Because they should hate you. (laughs) Right? And I am not joking here. God knows I am not joking here. So there's fighting in the church. Set that aside for a second. Let me just talk about boring old church governance for a moment. This is going to dull you to death, but this could be helpful to you. How many of you have been a part of a church where the local church really isn't involved in many decisions at all? All the decisions are made by like the priest or the pastor and then the governing body above the priest and the pastor. How many of you have ever been a part of a denomination or church like that? Right? That kind of church governance is typically called the Episcopal kind, where the local church, they may decide what color the carpeting is, but they make no decisions about who the next pastor is going to be. The congregation really has no authority. All the authority is the pastor who's hired and brought in, and by the region above it, the bishops, the archbishops, and so on. So we see something of that here in Acts 15, don't we? That there is some authority above the local church, that's helpful, especially in settling conflicts. But that isn't necessarily exactly all that should be done. The congregation has real authority here, and the elders do too. So Episcopal kinds, it's, it's to maybe summarize it, it's very pastor-led. The pastor and the bishops and all of them make all the decisions for the church. The church really has no decision-making input at all, no authority. An- That's one kind. The second kind is elder-led. They have a group of men who hopefully are godly, who are from that local church, chosen from among that local church. And the congregation has input into decision-making. They have debate. They get to vote on certain things. So there's this give and take. And then in this model, 
The local church has authority, the members, there are a group of elders, pastors among them. And then there's typically some group above them, maybe a gathering in a region of all the pastors and elders who do have some authority over the local church, especially in settling disputes. That model typically is called the Presbyterian model. And again, you see some of that here, right? You see dispute authority of an outside group of the local church helping them settle the dispute. You see elders from within the local churches dealing with it and the congregation having authority. And we're kind of like Presbyterian, except we have no connection outside of our local church at all. I mean, we may call somebody, but there's no Presbytery, there's no denomination beyond Pine Grove. So Episcopal, Presbyterian, and then the last kind is where basically the congregation has all of the decision-making authority on everything all the time. They may or may not have elders. In fact, some of these churches are very skeptical of any distinction among anybody here at all. They may not even have a pastor, just various different men may get up and preach here and there. But everything is settled by a democratic vote by everybody. I call that pain. <laughs> because typically in those kind of churches, the people who make the decisions are the people who have the most pull, who have been there the longest and the most money. And if you vote different than then you get a stare until you get along with them. Right? Well, I, I don't want to mock it that much, but that's typically called congregational there's no body above the local church. There may or may not be distinction with the local church. The congregation decides everything. And it seems to me in Acts chapter 15, it's a mix of those three, isn't it? Where are we at at PGCC? Well, we're kind of a mix of Presbyterian and congregational. We have pastors and elders and deacons. We aren't pastor-led. I don't make all of the decisions. I don't demand my way. In fact, sometimes when I have come up with really good ideas, the elders who are often wrong thought it wasn't a good idea and decided we shouldn't do it that way. Five years later, I just go, I told you guys. I'm joking. We have a good mix of elders and pastors, each with a voice, each with a vote. We have good debate. We make decisions, and yet we want the congregation's input and vote on areas. That's why we're doing these regular family meetings. We want you to be in the know. We want to hear your voice. We want you to exercise your right authority. We don't have anything above us. I have said this to the guys. I don't know that we need a, to be a part of a denomination, but in matters of dispute, it is helpful to have somebody outside your local church. There's a reason when you're in marriage trouble, you go to a counselor. You need a third party sometime that's more objective, that isn't on anybody's side to listen and help you decide, hopefully according to Scripture. But that, that's what we're doing here. So th those are different kinds of governance. That's where we are. But say that all, governance in the church is very, very important for good order and good relationships. If you do not have good elders and good pastors, your church will not be good. If you don't have men who see that their job is to deal with the conflict and sin of the people, then your church will either be totally pretentious, everybody puts on a happy face, everybody is good, and though inwardly and relationally they're not, 
or you'll just have an implosion because all of the fighting will just explode. But if you have men who are constantly watching you and wondering why the couple never sits through each other in the church and, and, and wonder why when they take their membership or their you know, directory photograph, they're like, there's daylight between them. <laughs> and they're willing to go into your conflict and deal with it. You'll have a healthy church. And that's what we see here. There will always be conflict. There will always be arguments. There will always be fighting in the local church. Always. The measure of health isn't the absence of conflict. The measure of godliness and health is, are we dealing with it in a godly, biblical way? That's true for you in your life, right? You will always have to fight. Who will you always have to fight? Yourself. You'll always have to fight yourself. You always have to fight your own temptations, your own sins, your own guilt. So the measure of your godliness isn't that you have a fight on your hands, it's if you're fighting, you're battling. Just what, another way to say it is you'll always have peace in the church just whether or not it's true peace or false peace. You'll always have winners and losers in the church. It's just if the winners are the godly saints who are trying to do right or if the winners are those ungodly saints who are always causing trouble but nobody will say no to them. You'll always have people being disciplined in the church. Discipline in Acts chapter 15 is inevitable. Pain is going to come to somebody. It's just whether the discipline and pain will come to those who are telling them that, no, salvation means you have to be circumcised, or if nobody would say no to them and pain would come to all the godly people. You see this in your own families. If you don't discipline the child who's causing the pain, all of the other children get the pain. You understand what I'm saying, right? Peace and discipline are inevitable. And so we have to have godly leaders who actively enter into the fray, into the conflict, who speak up, who love the sheep enough to fight for their protection. Correct? Do you all understand what I'm saying here? Do you see how vital this is? And it's typically men who are given this calling. Now, I said in Titus 2, older women are supposed to fight younger women. But men will lead this charge in the church. This is what we're for, guys. Now, this doesn't mean we want to be quarrelsome. This doesn't mean we're always looking for a fight. This doesn't mean we nitpick and argue over the littlest things. This doesn't give us any excuse to be rude or heavy-handed. But it just means that you love the sheep and you're looking for where the next conflict is coming. And when you see it, you don't deny that you see it. You ever do that? Do you know what I mean? I officiate in every game I see a foul that I don't call. 
And the reason I do that is because it's just not worth it at that point. But it'll bite me later on because that foul is coming again. And then I'll call it on that one and the other one will say, so will you see it? And when you see it, will you go towards it? Will you have the faith to enter in for the good of the sheep and for the glory of God? That's what we see in Acts 15. That's what we see with Paul and Barnabas right away in the beginning, that they not only have a dissension, but a big one. They go toe-to-toe right away because this is a big issue. They will not remain quiet. They won't settle for a false peace. They won't try to keep everybody happy. They go towards it. So what we see with Peter in the Jerusalem church, what we see with James, this was a good fight. One other thing. We see at the end of the chapter, and I pointed out to you, James's kind of humble compromise here. One of the principles in conflict is that sometimes there are people who are very rigid. It's all the way or no way. There is, you know, very little give and take with them. It's always black and white. It's always yes and no. And, and look at verse 19. And then look at verse 22 and 25. Now verse 19 in the ESV translate the word different, but you'll see it, the same words in verse 22 and 25. Therefore, it says, my judgment in verse 19. In verse 22, then it seemed good. And then in verse 25, it seemed good. All, all those three phrases are exactly the same in the Greek. This seems good to us. And, and in verse 25, or uh, I'm sorry, verse, is it verse 22? Oh no, verse 28, sorry, same thing. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What do you think about that language, it seemed good? When you hear that, this seems good to us. This seems good to us. This seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What do you think about that language? Kind of weak, isn't it? Seems a bit jello-y. What do you mean it seems good to you? Peter, what's right and what's wrong? Do what's right. You ever deal with somebody like that who has no reasonableness at all in them? It's all the way or no way. But look at the language here. It's the first time the church is dealing with this issue. They're trying to figure out truth in relation to error. And they're they're being very reasonable. I know it's going to frustrate some of you. Because you're the kind of person that's like, your socks are always on exactly right. The little seam at the end always lines up perfectly. You're just very fastidious, perfect, and demand that of everybody else around you. you. I'll be careful here. And yet, here we have Holy Spirit inspired apostles, authors of Scripture. Elders in the church, and their letter says, this seems good to us. Are you okay with your leaders submitting to leaders who say stuff like that? 
I tell you, I think COVID revealed a lot of our hearts here. You were, especially early on, because you had leaders that it seems good to us that you wear masks. And you all just blistered with anger. We have very little leniency for leaders in difficult situations who are just trying to do their best. Wives, you do this to your husbands. Children, you do this to your parents. Workers, you do this to your bosses and supervisors. This seems good to me. So that's good governance and shepherding here in Acts 15. Let me close with the gospel. They were fighting. They were fighting over salvation. They were fighting, is salvation through grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, or is it grace in Christ and faith plus circumcision law? It can't be both. It cannot be both. Verse 11, Peter says, We believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? What is grace? How do you think of grace? Grace is this. In verse 9, Peter says they needed their hearts cleansed by faith. Hearts cleansed. Why? Because they're dirty. Because they're wicked. Why are their hearts dirty and wicked? Because they have Adam as their forefather. Because when Adam sinned, they sinned. Because Adam's sin shattered us. Because Adam's sin bent us into... I'm sorry, moms, I'm going long here. Adam's sin wrecked us. And our hearts became really dirty. Filthy. Darkened. Deceitful above all else. Corrupt. Full of filth and muck and mire. And so the question being answered here is, how do I deal with this? You know your heart, right? Do you know your heart? Grace is God coming to you and cleansing you. Not because of you. Not because you said, God, I love you. But because in your filth, in your treason, in your rebellion, God of his own initiative, out of nothing but love, unearned and unrequested, came to you and picked you up and took you out of the filth and cleaned you up in Christ. That's grace. And it wasn't, I will clean you up so long as you'll get circumcised. And it wasn't, I will clean you up so long as you give 10% of your money to the church. It was, as you're kicking and screaming and fighting against me, I'm going to clean you up. It's grace. Another way to say it is, what did you contribute to your salvation? It ain't nothing. And it ain't something. It's treason. It's sin. That's all you brought to the party. You brought a will that refused. 
you brought a heart that didn't love. And God, in unthinkable mercy and grace, picked you out, cleaned you up, and brought you in. That's grace. Now, grace doesn't clean you up so that you can go back to the pig pen. You will go back to the pig pen. But grace cleans you up and then says, my grace is sufficient for you to try to live more like Jesus. But here, the grace is free. The grace is Christ. And the grace is received just by faith. Do you have anything in your hands when you go out to Christ? You have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to Christ and his cross do I cling. That's grace. And that's worth fighting for. To add anything more is to condemn to add anything more is to obscure the glory of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is Jesus Christ. Him alone. His work alone. His continued work before the Father pleading for you. His returning to take you with him. It's all Christ. To add anything of your own to what he did is to obscure his glory and take some for yourself. And that's worth fighting for. It's all Christ. It's not your will. It's not your goodness. It's not your parenting. It's not your volume and singing. It's not your dress. It's not what you won't eat or drink. It's not that you never swear. It's that you do all those things. And Jesus forgives you because he lived perfectly, died and rose and reigns. And that's enough. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? That's salvation. And to add anything to it is to bring hell with. Let's pray. Father, help us. These are big things, heavy things, many things. Help us to sort them out to see the goodness of fighting our own sin, to see the goodness of fighting for the sake of the weak, the harassed, the harmed, to fight for truth and godliness and courage. And so God, continue to raise up men and women who will fight, at first fight their own sin, at first fight to believe truth, at first fight to be godly, at first fight to manage a household well, and then that are willing to help others fight their conflicts. Please help us. Also be more submissive to those who fight well and help those who fight well to fight for your glory above all else. And then God, help us to fight mostly, mainly for the truth and the freedom of your grace and that it is grace, that it is through the grace of your Son alone that we're saved. It is through Christ alone that we're saved. It's through receiving it just by faith. And so, God, help us to enjoy this glorious grace of yours and give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.